A couple of weeks ago, my wife Ashley ordered some new fall clothes for the kids to start the new school year. And upon placing this order with a particular clothing company, I won't tell you which one, but you can guess, she received a confirmation email announcing the good life is on its way. Now, this email contained a photograph of a young model with a beaming smile on her face, dressed in casual leisure wear and sitting on the deck of a sailboat. And the caption read, every day should feel this good. And Ashley immediately forwarded that email to me because she knew this would provide great fodder for my fall sermon series. But that's one popular conception of the good life, is it not? It's about living a life of leisure and feeling good. And the message is clear. You can be rich and young and beautiful and you can feel good and have a good time, presumably if you're wearing the right kind of clothes. But that is uh, one of the messages that we receive. And don't get me wrong, I'm all for a little rest and relaxation. God, after all, has given us a, a beautiful world with all the good gifts of creation for us to enjoy. Food and drink, art and song, mountains and sea, replete with sailboats. And yet, despite all that, the fundamental message of Christianity is often mistaken. Some think that it is a world-denying, soul-crushing faith, but no, to the opposite, quite the opposite, it is a world-affirming, soul-enhancing faith. But with that comes the understanding that there is so, so much more to the life that God has in store for us than merely feeling good and having a good time. Well, last week I mentioned that the longtime University of Chicago professor, Leon Cass, recently wrote a book entitled Leading a Worthy Life. And in it, he suggests that there is nothing more dehumanizing or certain to cause a crisis than to experience one's life as a meaningless event in a meaningless world. The trouble, he says, is that with each passing generation, we seem to have become ever more spiritually impoverished and unable to articulate satisfying answers to life's biggest questions. And of course, one of those big questions is, what is the good life? And how is it supposed to be lived? Well, in this book, Leon Cass offers five domains in which people can and do find some semblance of meaning in our lives. The first is the domain of fulfilling work. The second is the private domain of love and family and friendship. The third is the public domain of devotion to one's community, one's people, one's nation. The fourth is the devotion to the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom, seeking the truth about ourselves and about our world. And the fifth is the domain of devotion to something higher than ourselves, the holy, the righteous, the divine. Devotion, in other words, to God. And what struck me about this list that Leon Cass provides is that you find all of these domains illustrated in the life of David, which is the focus of our fall sermon series. Now, the rise and fall and promised redemption of David, Israel's greatest king, is the single most extensive story told of one person's life in all of Scripture. But that is not to suggest that David represents the ideal human being, because that couldn't be farther from the truth. 
The Bible presents David in all of his complexity as a multifaceted figure. And David is himself not much. He's not much in himself. And he himself does not have much to offer us in terms of showing us how to live life successfully. If I were to tell you to go out there and be like David, you would likely run your life into the ground. And yet for all of that, whether he is demonstrating epic faith or disastrous sin, David lives his life before God, aware of God, responsive to God, and that is the key to the good life, no matter who you are. Now, last week I suggested that if you want to live the good life, the first thing you have to do is figure out who you are. And we talked about the importance of grounding your identity, first and foremost, in your relationship to God, above and beyond anyone or anything else. And this week I'd like us to focus on the first domain that Leon Cass mentions, the domain of fulfilling work. Because the first story that's told about David after he is anointed by the prophet Samuel is set in the workplace. It's all about David's first job. So I'd like us to turn to 1 Samuel 16 and consider what this episode has to tell us about the dignity of work, the dangers of work, and the deliverance of work. So if you'd like, let me invite you to open up to 1 Samuel 16. You can find this passage printed on page 239 of the Pew Bible. It's also printed in the order of worship. I'll be reading 1 Samuel 16, verses 14 through 23. This is God's word. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skilled in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. The word of the Lord. This is God's word. It's trustworthy, and it's true, and it's given to us in love. Well, the first thing that David does after he is anointed king by the prophet Samuel is go to work. He enters Saul's court and becomes his right-hand man. Now, Saul had previously been anointed as king, but he's no longer acting like it. And now David is anointed, and he is placed right in the exact same workplace, side by side with Saul, who is starting to lose his grip. Well, I wonder what your first job was. When I was in middle school, I was a babysitter. I earned $5 an hour. I started caddying at the local golf shop. 
And I could make $21 for a loop of 18 holes, $42 if I carried two bags at the same time, sometimes plus a tip. When I was in high school, I started my own business painting houses and detailing cars. Money was a little bit better there. When I was in college, I did an internship with an auction house here in New York City, and I earned $6 a day. Not $6 an hour, $6 a day. Didn't even cover the subway fare. It was for the experience. Well, many of you may have just moved to New York City for your first job. Perhaps you're in the midst of switching jobs, and if that's the case, you know that it's often challenging to figure out the personalities of your colleagues or the culture of the organization, the expectations of your manager. And if you're having a hard time with that, it might be comforting to know that after spending his childhood tending sheep in Bethlehem, when David moves to the big city for his first job, he ends up working for a terrible boss who is anxious, afraid, and paranoid. Now, you might have a tough time with your boss, but at least your boss is not trying to kill you, literally, on a regular basis. So we learned something from David here. In addition to entering Saul's service as his armor bearer and his personal attendant, David was a musician. He was skilled at playing the lyre, which was essentially a small portable harp. And so whenever Saul experienced one of his bouts of mental disturbance, David would provide a little music therapy. That was his first job. He had been anointed king, and yet it will be a decade or perhaps two before he is publicly recognized as king. And so in the meantime, he's given this rather undesirable task of serving a wildly maniacal leader. But the point is that this is David's God-assigned, God-defined responsibility. And that's what makes all the difference. See, for many of us, work is nothing more than a job. It's only worth as much as it pays for us to cover the bills. You might be interested to know that the word job actually came from the English word gob. A job is just a piece, a gob of work, simply a petty, insignificant task. But what we need to figure out is how to approach our work not as a job, but as a vocation. But there's the catch. The word vocation means calling. It is that to which one is called. But you can't have a calling unless there is a caller. You can't have a calling unless there's a caller. And there's so many people today who refuse to believe that there is a caller. And therefore, they hear no such call. And when it comes time to figure out what to do with one's life, people struggle for direction. And they're forced to have to simply choose from the enormous cafeteria of options that are out there available to them, which sometimes can become quite overwhelming. But you see, it's God's call, God's call that fills work. Even routine, mundane tasks with their meaning and their significance. And so finding meaning in our work generally depends less on the external task itself than the manner in which it is done. 
So let me uh, refer to this much often used example of three laborers. Let's imagine there's three laborers who are all engaged in the exact same task. But when asked what they are doing, they provide radically different answers. So you ask the first one, well, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm earning a living. The second one, engaged in the very same activity, says, I am dragging heavy stones. But then you ask the third one, what are you doing? And he says, I am building a cathedral. Do you see the difference? I thought about this once when I was actually in Paris, standing in front of the cathedral of Notre Dame. And I was fascinated by this structure, especially because I knew that it was built by the community of people who lived right around that church. Everybody pitched in. They did what they could through their gifts and resources and areas of expertise to build this cathedral. It began construction in 1163. But you realize that the cathedral was not completed for another 182 years. Now just think about that. What vision? The people who first engaged in that backbreaking work of laying those first stones knew that neither they nor their children nor even their grandchildren would ever worship within those walls. Which means that as they engaged in that work, they were not doing it for themselves. They weren't even doing it for their family. They were doing it all unto the Lord. And that is the difference that a true calling makes. Now, it's hard for us to imagine anyone engaging in that kind of work with that kind of vision today, but that is what is urgently needed. What is urgently needed is for Christians to recover a sense of work as vocation, calling. So David is appointed king, but that doesn't mean that he's going to sit on a throne. No, for David, that means service. Service to, of all people, Saul. But David is appointed for this task. And to be anointed means employment. To be anointed means to be set apart for a specific task. And it is that anointing, that calling, that connects our work with God's work. And that is what imbues all of our work with its intrinsic dignity. So think about what the Bible has to tell us about God's work. Consider the opening chapters of the Bible. You could translate Genesis 1-1 as, in the beginning, God went to work. Right on the first page, God is presented to us as a parent, a worker, a creator. God is a father who, who hovers over his newborn baby. God is an artist who creates something new that didn't exist before. God is an administrator who brings order out of chaos. God is an investor who goes in big despite the risk and makes a huge bet on human beings despite the loss that he might suffer. You see, God is presented to us intrinsically as someone who works. And as a result of that, when we receive our calling from God, our work is not only godly, it is God-like. Do you see the difference? Our work is not only godly, it is God-like. Because all of our work reflects God's own activity as a worker. And that is what imbues all of our work with its inherent dignity. And did you notice this as well? God works a six-day work week 
And then he rests on the seventh day, a day that is dedicated to worship. So what does that tell you? Well, it reminds me of something John Stott once said. He said, it's good that you come to church so long as you don't do it too often. It's good that you come to church so long as you don't do it too often. Now, what did he mean by that? He means that it's good for us to come together in worship. It's good for us to gather in the sanctuary, to worship, to pray, to hear God's word preached, to receive the sacraments. God strengthens us and encourages us through our worship together. But the fact of the matter is that the primary place where God meets us, challenges us, stretches us, changes us, uses us, is not in the sanctuary. No, it's in the day-to-day trenches of normal, everyday life. At home, at school, in the office, in the lab, in the studio, in the concert hall, in the boardroom. And I feel quite passionate about this because it seems to me that this becomes all the more important the more we move into the late modern world. Think about it. How did people in the first century, how did people in the first century, a world awash with other gods and committed to a very different kind of moral code, how did people in the first century ever come to think that the key to human existence and the clue to human history lies in a man hanging on a cross? How did that happen? How did Christianity win over the Western world and dislodge the old paganism? Well, I'll tell you how it didn't happen. It didn't happen because they had a great kids program at the church in Athens. It didn't happen because there was a rocking worship experience available at the church in Rome. And it wasn't because there was a great speaker at the church in Corinth. No, the way in which Christianity won over the Western world was not through Christians gathered in worship. No, it was through Christians scattered in their vocations. It was through normal, everyday Christians living out their faith, loving their neighbors, serving their community, engaging in their work with passion and integrity and excellence. It was Christians scattered in their vocations who demonstrated to the people around them a fully different way of being human. That's what won people over. And so it is today. How will people in the 21st century, a world awash with other gods, committed to a very different kind of moral code, how will people in the 21st century come to believe that the key to human existence and the clue to human history lies in a man hanging on a cross? It's not going to come from me. It's going to come through you. It is the church scattered in its vocations, not the church gathered in worship, that will change the world. And if you are doing your job, well, then maybe, just maybe, there will be more and more people who cross the threshold of a church and join us for worship for the very first time, or perhaps for the first time in a very, very long time. And if you are doing your job, well, then I'll have to do my job well. The pastor, Eugene Peterson, once described his work as a pastor like this. He says, as a pastor, I often found myself dealing with men and women who didn't know how to act in the place of worship. When they entered the sanctuary, they left at least 50% of their vocabulary outside. They talked differently. They stiffened ever so slightly. Not all of them true, but enough to let me know that I had my work cut out for me. The work of speaking the word of God to them in the language of their working lives. 
For how are they going to hear and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ if they heard it only in church language? How are they ever going to get a feel for the Bethlehem manger, the Galilean fishing boats, Peter's curses and Mary's tears, to say nothing of the Golgotha cross if they got it only behind stained glass windows to organ accompaniment? And how are they ever going to realize that the adrenaline rush following Tuesday's business deal, the nausea of spousal betrayal on Wednesday, and the interminable boredom of a Friday afternoon were the actual stuff in which Christ was working their salvation if they supposed that the primary place for hearing and understanding God's word was the sanctuary. The sanctuary is essential. But it isn't the primary location for the day-by-day cultivation and practice of spirituality, the Holy Spirit shaping the Christ life in us. I'm still engaged in that work, saying and showing, insisting that the world of work is the primary context for spirituality, for experiencing God, for obeying Jesus, for receiving the Spirit. But I'm not finding it any easier. You see, there is an unfortunate history that has made a distinction between what you might call sacred work and secular work. Sacred, godly work and secular human work. But the pages of Scripture reveal that that distinction is a false dichotomy. It's not as if the pastors and the full-time Christian ministry workers have a true vocation from God and everybody else is just a second-class citizen within the kingdom. Oh, and by the way, Jesus does not have any part-time followers. But you see, whether it is voluntary or paid, skilled or unskilled, at home or in the workforce, every sphere of life, every sphere of life provides us with an opportunity to contribute to God's purposes in the world if we do it all unto the Lord. That's the difference. The manner in which we do it. You see, every Christian has a holy calling. Every Christian takes holy orders. But you see, along with the dignity of work, the scriptures also point us to the danger of work, which is made clear in this episode. See, a few moments ago, I said that when we work well, We are not only godly, we are godlike. We're like God himself. But if we're godlike, it's easy to slip into thinking that we are ourselves gods. Gods within our own sphere of work. And if we think we're gods, well, then we don't think that we need God. Or at least, not very much. And that's what happened to Saul. Saul was originally anointed by Samuel as Israel's first king, and everything started out so well. He enters the story with compelling presence and sincere humility. Saul was a good leader. He wasn't just a good general, he was a good person. But despite all of his charisma and skill, the problem with Saul is that he just wasn't all that interested in God. And so over time, he became more and more absorbed in the work itself. And that is what causes his downfall. See, on two separate occasions, the prophet Samuel confronts Saul about an act of disobedience. 
which took place within the context of Saul carrying out his work. It was an act of disobedience within his work, within his vocation and calling. Now, neither act of disobedience seemed wrong or immoral or sinful. Neither seemed even all that serious. And what is rather striking is that at the core, interestingly enough, both ultimately had to do with worship. See, in the first instance, Saul fails God because he just wants to keep the people focused. And in the second instance, Saul fails God because he just wants to make the people happy. And so what does he do? He gives them what they want. But that means worshiping God on their terms rather than God's terms. And you see, if we do that, well, then we're treating God as a mere tool, a, a, a mere means to an end rather than an end in himself. And God will not be used. And that's the trap that we can all fall into. We may not be interested in God for who he is. We're only interested in what he can do for us. But if you're interested in what God can do for you rather than for who he is, then you're treating him merely as an instrument, a tool, a means to an end. So you might say, well, Saul had a great job. He was the king. But just because you have a great job doesn't mean that you'll do it well. Just because you have received a calling from God does not mean that you will be faithful. And that's why our jobs present an enormous temptation to us. Do you realize that? If through our work we're not only godly but godlike, it's incredibly tempting to look to our jobs, to our calling, to our vocation, rather than to the caller to give us a sense of identity, purpose, or redemption. And that is idolatrous. The definition of an idol is you're looking to someone other than God to provide you with your ultimate sense of identity, purpose, or redemption. Now, this is New York City, so my guess is that there are more than a few Sauls right here today. And if you're a Saul who's made an idol of your work, what might that look like in practice? Well, consider identity. You might say, well, I know who I am. I know that I'm unique and special. I know that I am valuable because of my work. Or how about purpose? You might say, well, I know why I'm here. I know what I'm supposed to do because of my work. Or you might say, I can make up for all of my past mistakes. I can redeem myself through my work. Do you see how easy this is to do? Let me use myself as an example. Don't you think it would be so easy for me to say, I know who I am. I know that I am unique and special and valuable. I know why I'm here and what I'm supposed to do, and I can redeem myself for all of my past mistakes because I'm a pastor. But all of us can do that, and all of us try. We try to find our ultimate identity, purpose, and redemption in and through our calling rather than through the caller. But do you see the idolatry in that? My calling only describes a part of who I am. It doesn't define me. My calling is only one aspect of my life. It doesn't sum up my entire purpose. And my work might be important. But my job cannot save me. My job can't forgive me. My job can't redeem me. And that's what, fall, that's what Saul fails to see. 
Our callings are important because there's important work for us to do, but we can't look to our jobs for our righteousness. We can't redeem ourselves. We can't make ourselves righteous through our work. Only Jesus can do that. So given the inherent danger within our work, what will deliver us from this temptation to idolatry? Well, what the David story shows us is that receiving a call from God is not about getting the so-called right job or the right career, but rather it's about doing God's work in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. Just look at David. David's anointed as king, but what is he called to do? He's called to play the harp. (laughs) Not what he thought when he first got the job. Well, David is called to be king, and what does he do? He plays the role of a deliverer. Well, very quickly, let me address a question that I'm sure many of you noticed when the scripture was read. What does it mean in verse 14 when it says, Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, on the one hand, the spirit is from the Lord, which is to suggest that nothing falls outside of God's loving providence for us. And yet, at the other, on the other hand, we need to be clear that God is never responsible for evil or harm or wrongdoing. God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, he's being tempted by God, because God cannot be tempted by evil, and God himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is enticed and lured by his own desire. So nothing happens outside of God's providential love for us, but God is never responsible for evil. And if that's true, then notice this, that this harmful spirit does not begin to plague Saul until after Saul confronts, Samuel confronts him about his act of disobedience, which suggests that when Saul refused to obey God's word, that's what opened him up to this harmful spirit coming in which shows that Saul is responsible for his own actions. But then notice God's kindness to Saul. God doesn't leave Saul where he is, but he pursues him with patience by sending David. He sends David to provide Saul with relief. And look at the result. This passage is framed by two nearly identical statements. Verse 14, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. But then verse 23, and the harmful spirit departed from him. So the question is, will Saul receive the deliverance that God provides through his anointed one? And that's what brings this passage home for us. Will we receive the deliverance that God provides through his anointed one? Deliverance from the dangers of our own calling. You see, David anticipates and prepares us for the coming of the ultimate one who is anointed as king. And as for David, so for Jesus. When Jesus is anointed as king, that didn't mean sitting on a throne. That meant service. Jesus enters our world. He comes into our lives in order to refresh us and to make us well and to drive out all those harmful spirits that plague us. And so then the question is, 
if Jesus has come to make us well, then how do we now discern our own calling in life? How do we hear the voice of the caller? Well, I like the way that Frederick Buechner once put it. He said, the place where God calls you is the place where the world's deep hunger and your deep gladness meet. The place where God calls you is the place where the world's deep hunger and your deep gladness intersect. And so, look out there at the world around you. What is the world's hunger? As you look at your family, your neighborhood, your community, your church, the city, the wider world, where are the needs great and the laborers few? And then secondly, ask yourself, what are the gifts and the skills and the experiences that light you up, that bring you joy? And that place of intersection where the world's deep hunger and your deep gladness meet, that causes your heart to catch fire, that very well may be exactly the spot where God is calling you to serve his purposes. Because that, after all, is what Jesus did. That's how Jesus discerned his own calling. Jesus not only scanned the horizon of the world, but he searched the deepest recesses of your own heart. And what did he discover? He discovered that your deepest hunger, whether you recognize it or not, is to be reconciled to God. And what was Jesus' deep gladness? What filled his heart with joy? What lit him up? It was you. It was the thought of being reconciled in relationship to you now and forever. And so as Jesus considered the world's deep hunger and your deep gladness, it led him to the cross. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus despised the cross's shame and endured what lay before him. And as a result, Jesus goes to the cross to do for you what you could never do for yourself. On the cross, all the harmful spirits that plague us as a result of our disobedience, as a result of our idolatry, fell on Jesus. Jesus absorbed it all. Jesus became sin with your sin so that we might become righteous with his righteousness. Our vocations, our callings, our work cannot tell us who we are. It cannot fill our lives with purpose. It cannot redeem us. Your job cannot make you righteous. Only Jesus can do that through his finished work. And in the Old Testament, God would give his spirit to some people some of the time to carry out a specific task, but not in the New, because in the New Testament, we see the fulfillment of God's promises. As a result of Jesus' finished work on the cross, he now pours out his spirit on all of his people, all of the time, to empower us to do everything in service to him. So Jesus embraces his calling for your sake. And now he invites you to embrace your calling for his sake. So let's get out there and get to work. Let me pray for us. Father, we recognize that one of the great tragedies of life, especially in the modern world in which we live, is that we might experience life as a meaningless event in a meaningless world. And we recognize how spiritually impoverished we are to find satisfying answers to life's biggest questions, like, what is the good life? And so help us to see, Father, that there is no calling without a caller. But if there is a caller, then it imbues all of our work with dignity. 
And so we pray that you would protect us against the dangers of idolatry, enable us to receive the deliverance that you have provided for us in and through Jesus. We pray that it would be in him that we discover our true identity, our true purpose, and our only redemption. And thus we can now find the freedom to serve you. In all that we do, in all that we say, in all that we think, all the time. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake.